Good morning. I'd like to invite us to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, or tap your app, or you can follow along on the screen as I I start to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and then I'm going to move right to verse 17 through 24. So starting in Ephesians 4, verse 1, and then moving to 17 through 24. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." Today we see in these verses the test of God in terms of living a life worthy of the calling of God. We're taking a test in church today. Have you been studying? Well, I'm going to help you out, even if you haven't been. I'm actually going to pass you a little note that has the answer. You ever do this in class? A little cheat sheet? And a couple people. I'm going to pass you... Pass a little note. It's got the answer on it. In fact, I'm going to do better than that. I've got baskets that have cheat sheets on them. I'm going to just send those around, make sure that everybody gets one. Yeah, Steve, there you go. Start that one there. Guys, there's a basket in the front. Come and get it. Let's pass those baskets full of cheat sheets. Don't let the teacher see. You ever get caught with a cheat sheet? They're usually crumpled up, right? Because you have to make them really small. Kirk had one in the form of a paper airplane earlier that he was going to throw it to somebody across to see if they would get the answer. So we need a cheat sheet to pass the test. And the good news is that on the cheat sheet that you're getting is the answer that you need to pass the test. Here's the answer. It says, embrace a renewing mindset to reflect Jesus. Embrace a renewing mindset to reflect Jesus. So when we take the test in just a few minutes, that's the answer. And it's not cheating. You ever get a perfect score on a test? You ever get an A plus on a paper? Right? Some people did. What about awards and medals? Do you have any of those? Some people have a shoebox full of all those medals and awards and ribbons that they they earned, right? You carry them around with you from house to house. Do you keep that stuff? I have a wow file at home. In, in the wow file is all of the cards and, and you know, emails and celebrations and achievements that uh, our family ha- has had over the years. The whole family. And my wonderful paper is in that file. Here it is. My wonderful paper. That's what my English professor wrote on this paper. Professor John Howard Gibbon wrote wonderful on this paper back in 1991. I still have it. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. Here's the thing. I don't even remember what the paper was about. I pulled it out yesterday and I looked at it because I couldn't remember what was even on this paper. What did I write about in this paper that was so wonderful? And you know what? It doesn't matter 
All that matters is that I was wonderful. Even for one day in 1991, I wrote a wonderful paper and I kept it. That's what I remember. Anybody keep a failure file? Anybody? Come on. You have a file full of your failures? We don't keep those things, do we? I don't have, I don't have the worst paper that I ever wrote in a drawer. I don't remember the name of the professor who gave me my worst score on a paper. I want to be worthy. I want to remember my achievements, right? Now, modern leadership and management <clears throat> theories will teach us that we should celebrate our failures. We have to fail to succeed. And then they, they always point to the same kind of people, right? Michael Jordan. Oh, he missed 800 billion baskets. And still, he was one of the best basketball players of all time. To celebrate, you have to fail to succeed. We should celebrate that. But guess what? Michael Jordan doesn't carry around tape of him missing baskets and losing games. Right? He carries around a championship ring that he wears as a celebration of what he had achieved. <coughs> we keep coming back to verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 4. It's a really important verse. It says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's what God inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Ephesus. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now somehow, when we hear live a life worthy, some of us think about impact and importance and achievement, right? My mind tends to go in that direction. And we think be worthy, right? God says live a worthy life and we hear be worthy. We want to be worthy, don't we? We want to pass the test. More than that, we want to get an A. We want to get an A plus on our paper, don't we? Well, here's the truth. God's got that covered. God's got our worthiness covered. That's what we just celebrated at the Lord's table when we celebrated Lord's Supper. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Who washed it white as snow? Jesus. Jesus washed it white as snow. I wasn't worthy of God's approval. I wasn't wonderful in God's eyes. I'd been struggling like you to be wonderful in my own eyes and wonderful in the world's eyes and trying to impress my neighbor or, or my friends. No matter our level of effort or whether Professor John Howard Given gives you an A+, it's a worldly measure of a worldly pursuit that has a worldly meaning. Trying to be worthy will often leave us feeling empty. It's an empty way of life. God views us as worthy because of what Jesus did in living a perfect life and dying a sinless death to take our guilt and cover us. God's got us covered when we put our trust in Jesus. Our verse isn't telling us to be worthy. Our verse is telling us to live worthy. Not to think about how to earn or achieve worth in front of the world or before God. Rather, Paul's talking about a new way of thinking, a new mindset regarding our, our lives. In order to live a life worthy of our calling, we need to grab onto that truth that not only is our worth found in Jesus, our ability to live a life worthy of our calling is also found in Jesus, not in us. Embrace a renewing mindset to reflect Jesus. We've heard in the last few weeks what worthy living is. That's, this, that's what Ephesians chapter 4 uh, teaches us, verse after verse, week after week. Worthy living is rooted in our unity in God. 
It's expressed through the diversity of the gifting that God gives us, each one of us. It's practiced and, and growing in the church, and it's strengthened by apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers among us. Until we've grown up and we mature in Christ, no longer infants being tossed around by crazy ideas and deception. Pastor Kirk shared about this last week. When we fulfill this for, verse, we're, we're, we're as the body of Christ reflecting our head, who is Jesus. That's it. Worthy living is a life that reflects Jesus. Anybody bring a red pen today? It's time to grade our paper. Need the old red pen to do that. What's your... What's your letter grade? What's my letter grade for living a life worthy of my calling? What's my letter grade in reflecting Jesus? How are you doing with that? Take out your red pen. Remember the red pen? <laughs> Get a paperback or a test back. The red pen told you how you did, didn't it? You could tell even whether your teacher was getting bored or annoyed with your work because they would write the word vague in the margin, Right? Or repetitive. Fragment. Anybody resemble that remark? How about run-on sentence? Carrying on and on and on without forming a complete thought. How are you doing with reflecting Jesus? Our head as his body in these four walls. Or out into the community. We have a vision at Southridge that we will turn outward and live God's purpose so that our community will experience God. And the essence of finding God's purpose for us in that unified sense is to reflect Jesus to each other and out into the community. How's your unity with others today? Are you giving yourself a red tick in the margin or are you going to write fragment? How's your serving going? Pastor Brent challenged us a couple weeks ago with identifying and using our gifts. He taught us that we receive a saving grace and then God gives us a serving grace. Do you know your gifts and are you using them? Many of us do, right? That's awesome. Some other people wrote vague in the margin. I kind of know, but I'm not really plugged in. Are we growing in maturity or are we reverting back to old ways and therefore do we look like those infants being tossed around instead of mature followers of Jesus? Grade your paper. Take out that red pen. What's your outcome today? Well, the Ephesian church received a D on worthy living. That's what we see here in verse 17. Paul writes, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Why were they getting a D? Why was Paul coming down on them and telling them to stop living like the Gentiles in futile thinking? Well, first of all, they were Gentiles, right? Paul was telling Ephesian Gentiles to stop living like Ephesian Gentiles. And that's sort of like saying, me saying to you, stop living like the people of Langley. You're like, I do, I do live in Langley. I, I'm a Langlite. I'm Langluvian. Langlapudlian, whatever we call ourselves. I live in Langley. You're telling me stop living like the people of Langley? That's where I'm from. But Paul's saying, even though you live in the world... You don't have to think and have thoughts of the world. And furthermore, it's not just about thinking. Paul's talking about more than thinking because thinking leads to attitudes and attitudes lead to behavior. The Christians in Ephesus were living like the rest of the Ephesians around them. And Paul was saying, just like he's saying to us, stop living like Ephesians who aren't Christians. Stop living like the world. 
Stop living the way you used to live. That old life, that old self, self, stop living that way. And then Paul goes into some detail about what that life looks like that they were living. We see in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Darkness, separation from God, ignorance, insensitivity, sensuality, indulgence, impurity, greed. There's a bent toward darkness instead of light here. There's a resulting distance from God. There's an insensitivity here that's like a callousness. Like those tough calluses that we get on our feet from walking around or that we get on our hands from working with our hands. The Ephesians had gone beyond being able to feel anything about their lifestyle. And there's impurity here. There are definite inferences about sexual impurity in the word pictures of this passage. And there is greed. The greed we're talking about, it's not like financial greed that we normally associate with this word. It's actually greed for the futile thinking and way of living. It's a desire um, for indulgence and impurity beyond what we should desire and without concern for what's right for those around us. It's a really selfish approach to living how we want to live. And that greed has spillover effects and consequences to other people. Has the darkness of your life ever had negative consequences for those around you? The life without God is self selfish. It's self-centered. It's a keep control for myself, uh, master of my own destiny kind of life. And we're greedy with the control of what we do and what we don't do. That's an issue of surrender. We're greedy with our time and we ring fence our time so that we can spend it on things like gaming or shopping or Netflix, which is an issue to, of stewardship with the way we invest our time. Some of us are greedy with our darkness. We're unwilling to give up our favorite sin. I know, you don't want to think about having a favorite sin, but some of us are struggling with a sin issue. Is every person in the world around us gripped in this vice of darkness? That's a fair question, isn't it? Weren't there any decent people living in Ephesus? Are you saying there aren't any decent people living in Langley? Well, let's listen to what the author Francis Folks says about Ephesus and see if you hear anything familiar here. There was a mental, spiritual, and moral decadence in, our, in society in Ephesus at that time. In losing the living conception of a living God, pagan society had also lost the conception of the true object and perfection of human life, leading people wandering around aimless, hopeless, and reckless. Does that sound like anywhere you've been? Not many of us have been to first century Ephesus, yet we have been to Vancouver and Surrey and Abbotsford and Langley, and there are a lot of people out there who are aimless, hopeless, and reckless. And that's what the Bible calls an empty way of life. And so here's the Ephesian Christian's problem, and I'm, I'm sorry to have to be the one that breaks this to us, but it's a problem in this room too, right? Some Christian Ephesians were still living that empty way of life even though they knew Jesus. And some of us are still living like the world, still living a life that could be described as aimless or hopeless or reckless. 
Here's what 1 Peter 1.18 adds to the discussion. Peter writes, You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. The worldly life that Paul describes here is a way of life that's handed down to us naturally in society, yet it's not the way of life we learned through Jesus. He taught us about a, a worthy life. He taught us how to reflect these truths in our lives. Reflect what Jesus taught. He brought us and taught us a very meaningful and abundant and God-pleasing way of life that's not like the life that's separated from God. We know it. We've seen it in Jesus. We've read about it in the Bible. We've even been taught about it, some of us, since we were born. And still, our thinking kind of gravitates toward this futility of the way the world thinks. And for some of us, our walks are still reflecting the world. We get wrapped up in it. Get wrapped up in that empty way of life from which we were redeemed. Jesus paid for it. Redeemed us from it. I asked you before to consider your letter grade. Hope none of you were tempted to pull the old teacher trick. Anyone tempted to grade on a curve this morning? Is that your strategy? We know that that can make us look good, right? If we're not so hot on the worthy scale, uh, if we just look down the row of seats to the left and to the right, right? Do, just have a quick look down the row that you're in. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Uh, just have a look. If you're lucky, you'll find someone that you know is worse than you. <laughs> and how will that make you feel? Better, right? It'll make us feel better about ourselves if we grade on a curve. Comparing ourselves to others, right? It will help us inflate our pride because we'll think of ourselves as superheroes because we can always find someone who acts like the knuckle dragger, right? Don't do that. Don't, don't grade on a curve. Instead, let's make it personal. Uh, let, let's look at where we're heading uh, through predictive and personalization algorithms. Do a quick poll. I want to see some hands here. Who, who, hands up. Who's on Instagram? Got any Instagrammers in the room? Yeah, we've got a few. Okay, what about Facebook? Anybody on Facebook? Lots of people on Facebook still. Yeah. What about Netflix? Who watches Netflix? Who's addicted to Netflix? Oh, yeah. Same thing happened earlier. All the hands go down as soon as you ask who's addicting. Nobody's binging on Netflix. Honest. For those of you who are holier than thou, right? I don't do those things. Anybody on Google? Who's Googling? Everybody, no, who's not Googling, right? Okay, we're all Google. Okay, we use these apps. Well, I, I want you to know, uh, if we, we want to figure out our place on the road toward uh, an empty life or the road toward a worthy life, we, we just personalize the test and the interweb helps us do this because websites personalize the advertising that you receive based on web pages that you've looked at in your browsing history, Right? What you click on predicts what you'll see next time you surf the internet. In September, I helped my son purchase tires for his truck. For weeks after purchasing the tires, my web browsing keeps littering my web screens with advertising for tires. That's how it works. Okay? I was even, just two days ago, sitting in an airport in Chicago on BibleGateway.com. What comes up? Tires. It's following me everywhere, right? Wherever I go, because I looked in September for tires a few times. Okay, several, too many times I looked at tires. So now they're coming up. Because you watched. Do you know this? Because you watched. Netflix has a whole section of their menu that's dedicated to suggesting shows and movies for you based on what you've watched before. 
Because you watched this, we think you would like that. It's predictive. Big mathematical algorithms figure this stuff out. Instagram is no different. If you go into the explore menu of Instagram, which is appropriately denoted by a magnifying glass, you will see pages and pages and pages of images, and if you tap them, they will say underneath, based on photos you liked. It turns out the magnifying glass is looking at you. Or it'll say, based on people you follow. Similar to accounts you interact with. Our lives, and this is underscored perfectly by the way technology propels us, are heading in a direction. I had a bit of an aha moment recently when one of those similar to the accounts that you interact with was an experience that wasn't an example of what I thought should appear on my screen, right? The social media platform personalized it for me. And all of a sudden I'm having a word with myself. I'm saying, well, what account on social media did I interact with that made you, social media personalization engine, think that this was my way of life? Was it my friend's interests that are being suggested for me? Was it my own click trends that were too close to some unsavory element to, that matched an algorithm in your system? Check yourself. If you think that Google's algorithms are smart, how clever do you think Satan's personalization engine is for tempting us? Peter tells us that he's prowling around right now like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Don't look down the row at your neighbor. Look at yourself. Look at your phone. Look at what your technology is feeding you because it's feeding you what you're eating. Your next entertainment meal is based on what you ate last time you came to the table. Grade yourself. When greed to determine our own direction and our own way of life takes us away from God's way of life for us, we start down that path toward darkness or take further steps down a path that we shouldn't even be on. Our futile and aimless and reckless ideas come from an ignorance that is born of a hard heart. And hard hearts are definitely human and natural. The world passes them on to us. The world is consistently working to harden our hearts. It does it to our neighbors. It does it to our friends. The world hardens the wicked and the good, the Christian and the Muslim, the agnostic and the atheist. The world does not discriminate in hardening hearts or in the growth of insensitivity and calluses in our lives. It'll tell us to interpret things in a negative light. It'll tell us to harden ourselves in self-preservation mode. Anybody been there? To take what is ours and to hold on to it with all of our life. All of our empty way of life. And pretty soon, I lose sensitivity, don't I? What sensitivity? Well, that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, who should be the one helping me to interpret every situation I'm in so that I can have feelings and take action that's based on God's grace rather than the feelings and the actions that are driven by my human nature and the world's influence. It's like that spirit voice that Pastor Kirk talked about last week. That's what we need to be sensitive to. Without the spirit sensitivity, I'm likely to give myself over to sensuality, impurity, and greed. Wouldn't Satan love for us to get worthiness wrong? to think it needs to be earned rather than reflected? And wouldn't he love for us to get our thinking wrong and be influenced into futile thinking and worldly living instead of what Paul calls the new mindset and the new self? Let's go back to our scripture again. In verse 22 we read, you were taught with regard to your former way of life 
to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, to be cre created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Today I want to focus on that mindset. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. In future weeks, we're going to dig into that new self in action, how it plays out in behaviors and specifically in relationships. That's the end of chapter 4. That's chapter 5 and chapter 6. But today, let's focus on turning our minds around because if we can make a decision today, then we can put it into practice tomorrow. But we have to make the decision today to put the new self on and then once we have it on, to live the new self once it's on. The first thing to clarify when we think about the new mindset and the new self is that there are two different kinds of new. The new mindset, the new attitude of our minds is a continuous rejuvenating and renewing of our minds in Christ. It's like a fountain of youth for your faith. A regaining of youth, a newness in your mind. And some of us could use that kind of newness today. Continuously renew your mind. I've been reading ab about the prophet Amos uh, in the Bible recently, and, and God gives Amos this amazing vision in Amos 7 of the Lord standing by a wall with a plumb line. And God said to Amos, I'm setting my plumb line among my people. This is a plumb line. This helps us to have a perfectly vertical line against which we can measure what we build. I posted on this earlier this week, and my friend Melinda from here at Southridge shared a story with me about her interaction with a plumb line. She, she, she wrote back to me, when I was 15 on a mission strip in Haiti, we built a rock wall and we used a plumb line to keep us building straight. It was such a lesson to us because one row even slightly out would cause the next row to be out further. In between the services, my friend Bevan came up to me and was talking to me about building rock walls. And he said, what's different about a rock wall, unlike a block wall, is that every stone is different. It's easy to get off track. She says, so if you keep building, the next row will be out further until we're way off course. Looking close up at our little section of the wall, it would seem perfectly straight, but to anyone stepping back and looking at the wall, they could quickly see a problem. Using the plumb line and staying right close to it was the only way to ensure that we were not building something that would have to be torn down and rebuilt. Thanks, Melinda. Jesus is our plumb line. We compare our lives to what we were taught in Jesus. We keep going back to Jesus and renew our mind and our life with him. We align with Jesus. In Melinda's words, it's the only way to ensure that we're not building something that will have to be torn down and rebuilt. And when we talk about the new self, we're talking about something that God builds in our lives. God's the master builder. The new self, the new person, is created by God. It's his creation when you put your trust in Jesus. This new, the new self, is new in the sense of fresh. It's a fresh nature. It's a completely new nature. Our minds are, are, are to be renewed and our natures are to be recreated. 2 Corinthians 5.17 offers that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This putting on of the new self is a one-time thing. 
That's what verse 24 says. Once we put on the new self created for us by God, we become new creations. It's done. The issue for the Ephesian church and, and even for some followers of Jesus today is that even though we put off the old self when we accept Jesus, even though we put on the new self when we become that new creation, somewhere along the way, we revert back in our thinking to be like the world. And then we resume living like the world. Old thinking gets in the way of our new nature. Paul says, stop living like that. Reconnect with the new self. Rejuvenate and renew your thinking. Embrace a renewing mindset to reflect Jesus. If these ideas are pretty new for you, if you haven't accepted what Jesus did for you, his sacrifice for you, and, and received forgiveness in, for the sins in your life, putting on the new self starts there. Your, your life in Jesus will be brand new and you'll be forgiven for all of the old life. And so if that's you today, if God is speaking to your heart right now and giving you clarity, I just want to talk to you for a minute. You might be aimless in your life and you're realizing that God's got a direction for you. You might be hopeless in your life and for the first time today, you're coming to understand that Jesus is a person in whom you can place your hope. Even if you have been reckless in the way that you're living, today you realize that there's grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And today, you're ready to receive that grace. If I just described you, I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to stop right now in the, in the middle of the service and I'm going to bow and pray a prayer that you can pray along with me and express that desire to God to accept Jesus as your Savior today. Let's, let's bow together. God, we thank you that you have the answer. You have the answer and have redeemed us from our empty way of life. And God, for those of us who feel aimless and hopeless and even reckless in the way that we are living, we call out to you. Say, God, we want to give that over to you. Receive your forgiveness for our old way of life and accept Jesus into our lives to show us a new way of life. Thank you for dying for me, Lord Jesus, and for rising again. I put my hope in you today. In your name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are now a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You have a new life in you as a new creation of God. I would love to meet you and hear that you prayed that prayer with me. And so, after the service, I'm going to hang around up here in the front. And if that was you, please come and tell me. There's nothing more important in the world today than people turning their lives toward God. I would love to hear about that. I want to touch on the importance of making a decision and the impact of it. I've, I've been at a conference in Indianapolis this last week for work and our time together this morning was never far from my mind. I was percolating on all the ideas and verses uh, as I studied and, and, uh, and then out of the blue, one of the presenters at this conference I was at started talking about the Greek root words of the English word decide. I'm like, Greek word words, wow, ding, ding, ding. My interest was all piqued. And it turns out that our English word decide comes from Greek words which mean to cut off. I had no idea. When we make a decision to do something, it's because we've eliminated or cut off the other choice. That's what we're talking about today. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, we're making a decision to put off, to cut off the old self. 
Okay, there's one more element on our test today. Counting. You good at math? Counting on the test. Counting is on the exam. I want to give us a practical step in the process of embracing a renewing mindset to reflect Jesus. And it comes from Romans chapter 6. Paul speaks about these same issues there and, and he explains that when we believe in Jesus and we trust in him, we are dead to sin. Here's what he says. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Our old self, Paul says, was crucified with Jesus. And Paul's discussion there reaches its summit with a challenge he lays before us. And, and this is where the counting comes in. In Romans 6, 11, it simply says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves. Consider yourselves. Proclaim to yourself that you are dead to sin and alive to Jesus. Just as sin starts in us when our desire conceives it, the new mindset of God leads us toward worthy, worthy living when we count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Count on it. Keep counting yourself dead to sin with a renewing mindset from Jesus. In Spanish, the way these, these verses, and particularly what, uh, what Andrew told us about Romans chapter 12, where we are not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in our thinking. In the Spanish, it's change the way you are thinking, change the way you are doing. If we can change the way we are thinking, we will change the way we are doing. Love that Spanish. I'm going to close with one little story here. Ken Blanchard was a well-known uh, author who taught at a university class and he got in some trouble from the faculty because he did something unique. Rather than teaching the entire textbook and letting the students guess what would be on the final exam, how much do we love that, he told them on the first day what would be on the exam. He gave them the answer. And class after class, he taught them the answers, the ideas, the facts. Everything they needed to know to get an A on the test, he shared with them before the exam. The Lord wants us to get an A on our test today. He's already given us the answers. Verse 1 through 16 in Ephesians 4, lay down how we're to live and learn and grow in the Lord. God doesn't evaluate our lives without giving us the answers on the test. In fact, he says to the Ephesians, who were living like the world, this is not the way you were taught. He taught us. Not this worldly, aimless, hopeless, and reckless way, the way of Jesus. Let us embrace a renewing mindset to reflect Jesus today. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you give us the answer. We thank you, God, that you sent your son. We focus so much on Jesus dying for us and rising again that sometimes our eyes gloss over the fact that Jesus lived for us. Jesus lived a life, a perfect life, to give us an example of how to live, of how to rely on you, God, of how to be led by the Holy Spirit, how to make those choices which reflect you. And God, as we look to Jesus, our plumb line, we pray that you would help us to reflect Jesus. That that would come from you, not from us, not from our human ways and means to achieve things, but God, from you working in us. Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.